Hello, my friend, my warrior. This is Mary Mack of The Mary Mack Show, encouraging you to visit my website, www.marymack.info, and pick up your free ebook, 21 Things You Must Know About the Grieving Process. And I encourage you to subscribe and pass this on to anyone who may be in need of assistance. Now back to our episode. Welcome to The Mary Mack Show, where we will be talking about your feelings, experiences, and pain following the death of a loved one. my friends, this is Mary Mack from the Mary Mack Show. And I am so fortunate to welcome today Mark Hoover. And Mark and I have been gracious friends for four years now. We both have podcasts that started about the same time in 2019. And he's always been a great mentor of sorts to me, helping me with how he's doing his podcasts and how I do mine. And today, we're going to talk about the death of his dad. His father passed away on April 13th, 2021. So it's just over two years now. And we'll look into how a man grieves. And this is very um, exciting to me in the sense that most of my guests have been female. And I'm so gracious, Mark, to have you um, to talk about your experience with grief. Now, Mark also writes a column. He writes a column, a true, true crime and missing persons uh, column for the Claremont Sun newspaper. This paper is 150 years old out in Ohio, and he does that weekly. And I think that's great because more people need to know um, about those whose crimes have not been solved and missing people. But also his podcast is called Catch My Killer, Catch My Killer podcast. And he has all these individuals who have unsolved murders on his show, and he helps expose cases that have been so old and, un and not, not touched for all this time by law enforcement. He tries to give exposure to these cases so that they will hopefully um, get some 
you know, some people looking back at their case, maybe bringing out the box again and starting from scratch, maybe a different pair of eyes with the detectives so that it finally can get resolved. So I thank you, Mark, so much for being with me today. I'm really great, grateful that you are here. Thanks. So <laughs> should I start? Okay. Well, um, I was born in Bangkok, Thailand in 1969, November 4th, 1969. So I'm old. <laughs> um, but I ended up, my dad's a Vietnam War. My dad's name was Michael Hoover, and he was a Vietnam War veteran and career military guy. Um, so he met my mother in Thailand. And what's really interesting about before he died, my parents were together for 50 years. Oh, that's and, great. Yeah. And so when he met my mother, he was, let's see, he was probably 20, 21. My mom was maybe 19. And they were together till he died. But what the, the, the funniest thing about their relationship, I don't even know if I want to say funny, but unusual is my dad didn't speak a lick of Thai. <laughs> and my mom did not speak a lick of English. Neither oh, one of them, my goodness. Yeah. So neither one of them spoke the other person's language. But yet they were able to communicate with each other and date and get married and have me and my two brothers. So, I mean, I. I don't know. I don't even know if I could do that. How do you even meet somebody that you don't speak their language? They don't speak your language, but yet you date. I mean, how do you even ask them on a date if you don't know their language? Yes, exactly. I have no idea how all that worked. But um, it did. Isn't that amazing how it did? Yeah, it did. I mean, that's, you know, it worked out. I mean, and, um, you know, like I said, they had 50 years together and they had their ups and downs, of course. But, you know, my mom and dad loved each other. It was a good marriage. But um, after, let's see, so I started off in Thailand and then my dad and my mom ended up, my dad brought me and my mom over to the States probably a year later, I guess, in 70 or 71. And my dad being in the military, he worked at the Pentagon. So we lived in Baltimore for a while. And then he got transferred to Fort Harrison in Indianapolis. I don't think it's there anymore, but it was there back in the 70s. So he got transferred to Indianapolis. And that's where I spent most of my time is in Indianapolis, growing up with my brothers and my mom. But um, my dad, he was, he was, I was really close to my dad. Me and my brothers were close to my dad. We were probably all closer to him than my mother. I mean, my mom's a great person too, but I don't know. It was just, we were just, we weren't mama's boys. We were more dad's guys, you know. We oh, just wow. We just communicated with our, we just got our dad more. And the thing was about my dad was when he first came home from Vietnam, I can remember being a child and him just being very angry. I mean, he was angry. He was mean. I mean, he was ready to fight people at the drop of a hat. Um, he had a very, very violent temper. You know, I remember my dad drinking a lot and being on drugs when I was a kid, smoking weed. I mean, he did it. I, I remember watching him do it. Me and my bro. I mean, that was kind of the thing in the seventies where parents did that. I mean, my friends, his buddies were military vets war, you know, they came over from Vietnam too. a bunch of his friends. You know, same thing. I go over their house or, you know, they come over our house and they would do their thing together. Uh, they were all big partiers, you know, I mean, but this was back in the seventies and I just remember him he spent two, two, two tours in Vietnam and, and he was in infantry, which in the army, it's 11 Bravo. So he actually, he wasn't 
somebody that sat at a desk or worked in a supply office when he was in Vietnam. His job was to actually go out into the jungle and kill Viet Cong soldiers. And he had a lot of kills when he was there. And he didn't talk about it for a long time, but I knew it bothered him. I just, as a child, I knew it bothered him. He killed people. He saw his friends get killed, lost several of his friends out there. And it was just so painful for him. And the thing you have to understand about Vietnam was it was a totally different type of war. When those guys came back, they were basically shit on by the public. Yes, Nobody I remember that. It was terrible. Nobody cared about them. I mean, my dad said he got called a baby killer and people actually, he said people actually spit at him, you know, when they saw that. And he told me that he didn't even really want to be seen in public with his uniform and he didn't talk about Vietnam. And a lot of his buddies were like that. A lot of Vietnam veterans were like that. When they came home, they just put their uniform away. Well, my dad was still in the military when he came home, so he couldn't. But a lot of guys did. They just put their military uniforms away and they never talked about it. And I've talked to other people that were in Vietnam or friends of mine who their parents were in Vietnam. And they said that their dads were the same way. They just never spoke about it. Yeah. And dad did talk to me about it after a while. But, you know, a lot of people just thought he was a hothead, you know, and um, I've, I've seen him as a kid. I remember seeing him just get so angry. And I knew that at the drop of a hat, he could probably kill somebody if he got mad enough at somebody. And I saw him have confrontations with people out in public. He just didn't take anything off anybody. I mean, if it was somebody bumped into him without saying, excuse me, my dad would lose his mind over it. So he had a lot to overcome. And I remember another thing was when he was, when I was growing up, if I would go into his room, when he, me or my brothers would go into his room to wake him up or talk to him, we couldn't get near him. We stood at the entrance of the door and said, hey, pop, get up, or whatever. Hey, pop, this or that. We never touched him when he was asleep. He always slept on his stomach and he had this big knife that he slept with under his mattress. And I remember wow. that because if you touched him while he was asleep, he would jump up and he would, he would assault you. I mean, he yeah. would grab you by your throat or whatever, you know, I mean, he was like that. He was that triggered and it took him a very, very long time to get over that. I don't think he ever got over it. And my mom I don't, God bless her. I, I don't know how she dealt with it because sometimes he took his anger out on her. I mean, he wasn't physically violent to her, but he would yell or get mad at her. It's just, it just things that simple, just simple things. He yeah. would lose his temper. I mean, he lost his temper with me and my brothers too, sometimes over just dumb stuff. But, you know, we understood where he was coming from. But like I said, about the Vietnam veteran, you imagine a guy going over there when he's 19 years old. When my dad went over there, he was going to college. And then he got drafted. He dropped out of college, got drafted. He had never heard of Vietnam when he went over there. He didn't know anything about it. He didn't know why he was going over there. He didn't know why he got the draft notice. Didn't know where it was. He knew nothing about Vietnam. He got the letter. He was 19. He went. And that was it. You know, he, he, he didn't even want to go to the military. I mean, it was just something that wasn't in his future, you know. From what I understand, he was a very fun-loving, good guy, very pleasant guy when he was a teenager. But I know when my mom said that when he got back from Vietnam, other people that have known my dad, my aunt, my grandparents, said he was kind of different when he came home. You know, and it was a very unpopular war. So extremely, 
you couldn't talk to anybody about it. They didn't have grief counselors. They didn't have any no. psychiatrists diagnosing them with anything. I mean, whatever. There was no special privileges or anything granted to them for having mental issues. It was basically, you're on your own now. You know, you come back. You, you, these guys would do a year tour, see a lot of combat, come back, and okay, you're on your own. Figure it out. And, you know, now with the guys that came back from Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, they have counseling, they have people they can talk to. The American public generally appreciate them. You know, World War II was the same way. These guys came back as heroes. You know, people loved them, respected them. But the Vietnam vet was somebody that was like a pariah. You know, it was like you didn't want to have anything to do with them. But even though with, through all that and just seeing everything through my dad, you know, how my dad handled life and everything is an angry man. I still loved him. My brother still loved him. We were still close with him. I mean, he worked two jobs. You know, after he got off active duty, he went to the reserves and National Guard. So he still did that in addition to his work and his regular job. But, you know, he always had time for me and my brother. So weekends, we play board games or watch movies or, or he'd take us to the movies, buy his toys. And, you know, and the thing is, I know a lot of guys that went through that, everything he went through when they – they, they couldn't they couldn't stay home i think a lot of them probably abandoned their families they left because they just couldn't stay i don't know for what one reason or other but my dad never did that he stuck it out you know it, with all the issues that he had he stayed with me and my brothers and he always told us i'm never leaving you guys because you know it doesn't matter what i went through or what's going on i'm always going to be with you guys and he was so you know, that was always that's there. very, that's very admirable because you're right. Yeah. A lot of people were afraid they would harm their <clears throat> families. So they wanted to, you know, they needed to leave. Yeah. Dad was always there though. I mean, it didn't matter, you know, it, through thick and thin, he was always there. Me and my brothers had problems, you know, all through high school, um, college, you know, um, I graduated from high school so before I graduated from high school, my dad had talked about me about joining the military and um, through the early entry program. So I did. I signed up. I swore in. I was 17 and I swore into the military. Now, keep in mind also at this time, I'm not an American citizen because I was born in Thailand. And um, I didn't I eventually. You weren't, got you weren't naturalized by him? No, no. I there were some kind of paperwork issues or I, I'm not sure what the reason was, but. I didn't get my citizenship because I wasn't, I was born overseas. And even though he's an American soldier, I, I don't know what the deal was, but my brothers were born in America. So they got, they were naturally born here, got to become citizens, but I had to wait and test. And I did everything in 1993. But when I joined the military, the Indiana army, the Indiana national guard in 1987, I was not a citizen, but you can join the military and not be a citizen. If you just have a green card. And that's what I did. So I signed up and he encouraged me to do it. So I signed up when I was 17. And then when I graduated, I went to basic training at uh, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. And then I went to training um, in Colorado. And then I served my time in the military. And then, you know, one of the things that my dad tried to tell me, and to this day, he's right that I regret was, so serving in the National Guard, you only do the one weekend a month. You do the uh, two summers out of the year kind of thing. I had a recruiter call me and say, hey, Mark, uh, 
how would you like to do a two-year stint in Germany? Active duty, Germany, got a cush job for you, man. It's a really easy job. They send you to Germany for two years. You can live in the barracks rent-free, meals free. He says it's kind of be like a vacation because you really won't be doing anything. The job they had lined up for me was making – I think I was going to be engraving plaques or something for award ceremonies, that kind of thing. Because uh, my my job in the military was as an illustrator. I drew maps, visual presentations, things like that. But oh, wow. it, was a, it was a job engraving awards or something. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. You know, my dad, I talked to my dad about it. And he said, Mark, dude, what's wrong with you? Go do it, man. He goes, do you realize you may never get another opportunity to go to Germany in your life? And he's he had been to Germany through the military and he loved it. He spent time over there. And he said, I really think you should go. I was like, dad, I just signed up for college. And I did. I had, I didn't want to go because I had just signed up for college and I wanted to go to college. I didn't want, I didn't, I didn't want to travel. I didn't, cause I would have probably had to put my college off for another couple of years. Cause I probably wouldn't have taken any classes in Germany. And I told him it was just more important at the time for me to go to college. But now looking back, I probably should have listened to him. I'm thinking maybe I should have just put college on hold and then gone to Germany for a couple of years and then come back and then done it. But I always told him that. I said, you were right. You know, I do regret that, Dad. I said, I wish I would have gone. I mean, it was only two years, you know. Mm -hmm. So, but anyway, that was just one of the types of advice he gave me that I disregarded, you know, and I regret. But I stayed and I stayed in town. I went to, went on to college, graduated from Indiana Wesleyan in 1994. I got my bachelor's degree and then I would eventually get my master's in 2015 in accounting. But it was just very important for me to get the college thing done. And, um, you know, just over the years, we talked a lot about a lot of different things. I mean, as I got older, our relationship changed, of course. Instead of the dad-son, it was more like equals. It was more like he was more my buddy than my dad. <laughs> you know, he was a strict disciplinarian guy when we were growing up. And then it just changed to where me and my brothers were like, he was like our just just another one of the guys. I mean, there was many hours we spent going out to eat together, just the four of us just sitting around, me and my two brothers and my dad just sitting around and shooting the shit and just talking about nothing. You know, I mean, it was great. But uh, yeah, we were, we were really tight. And so going into the cigarette thing, you know, he smoked during Vietnam and he smoked most of his life. And mm -hmm. that was a, now that was a major source of contention between me and him because I used to ask him not to smoke cigarettes and um, he would get, he never got mad at me, but when I brought up the cigarettes, if I asked him to quit cigarettes, he would lose his mind. He, cussed <laughs> me out. he would, I mean, he would literally, he would, he would curse me out. He would use cuss words that I ain't never heard come out of that man. You know, you, you, you don't tell me what to F and do. I raised you, boy. I changed your shitty diapers, you know? You don't <laughs> tell me. You don't lecture me. I've been smoking my whole life. If that's what I want to do, then by God, that's what I'll do, you know? Don't ever tell me about cigarettes. You know, don't, don't talk to me about it. You know, you can talk to me about anything else, but do not talk to me about cigarettes. I'm like, Dad, I, I'm only talking about it because I'm just worried about your health. Hey. And he's like, you know what? Piss off. <laughs> My dad was very blunt. He's like, you're my son. 
It yeah. doesn't matter. I don't give a damn how old you are. I'm always going to be older. I'm always going to be your dad. And yeah. I will not listen to you or take your advice when it comes to my cigarettes. I love them. I do it. I know they're bad for me. It doesn't matter. I, it's what I do. You know, it's my thing. You know, when I have stress, it's gotten me through my whole life, through Vietnam, stress. And he yeah. says just so he was very, very, very bullheaded about that. So I gave up. I, I stopped talking to him about it. When I when they were when I, when I was growing up, I used to flush their cigarettes down the toilet because they. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> let me tell you, I would flush my mom and dad's cigarettes down the toilet. And oh, your I'm mother smoked you, too. Yes, yes. It, and here I am, maybe I don't know, nine or ten years old. You know, think knowing cigarettes are bad for you, nine or ten, because it says it on the pack. And I learned it in school that they're bad for you. So I'm thinking I'm doing my mom and dad a favor by flushing their cigarettes down. The <laughs> so they were like, where the hell's my cigarettes at? I'm like, I don't know. Or no. And then I would say, well, I flushed them down the toilet. And oh, I think I got spanked. I'm sure I got spanked for it. <laughs> and I saw I never did it again. And, and they told me, do not touch our cigarettes, man. We have to have our cigarettes. You know, we will like kill you over that. Do not, you know, we'll give you a knuckle sandwich over that. Yeah. You know, and, and I learned at a very early age that cigarette smokers are very passionate about that. My mother-in-law yeah. was like that too. I tried to talk her out of smoking too. She smoked her whole life till she died and they killed her too. And she's like, I don't care. I, these are my cigarettes. I've been smoking them my whole life. I love them. I enjoy them and I'm going to continue doing them. Gives so, me you know, pleasure and it helps with yes. stress. So if you want to make an enemy out of a cigarette smoker, try to talk them out of smoking and they will smack you upside your head. That's one thing to turn a very nice person when angry man or woman is if you yeah. talk to them about cigarettes. So I learned kind of that it's just something you don't talk about anymore. So I don't talk to my mom about it. I don't talk to my brothers about it. They get angry. They smoke. They've been smoking forever. My whole family pretty much smokes, except me. I give up trying to give them advice about it. But, um, and I just knew in my heart, you know, very young age, I said, you know, dad, one of these days, they're going to kill you. And I told my mother-in-law the same thing before they died. I'm like, and that's all I'll say about it. They're going to kill you. They're going to be the death of you one day, dad. I swear to God, they're going to fucking kill you. I left it at that. And like I said, I saw my mother-in-law go through it. My mother-in-law got the lung cancer and she died from it. Cigarettes. And same with my dad. My dad started getting sick. And I was used to my dad getting around the house, you know, him and my mom going everywhere. Just, he was always on the go. My dad wasn't a couch potato by all means. My dad loved going out. But then it got to a point a few years ago where he just couldn't do it anymore. He had the heart stents. He had uh, his gallbladder removed. He had, he couldn't breathe. He had to have an oxygen machine. And I'll never forget just seeing that in his house and seeing him hooked up to that. And it broke my heart. You know, it broke my heart into pieces because I knew that was coming. I saw it happen to my mother-in-law. You know, years ago, I saw my mother-in-law go through the same thing in 2012, 2013. My mother-in-law couldn't breathe. She had to go to the oxygen because of the cigarettes. And, and, and what would get me, this is with my mother-in-law and my dad. They would unplug the damn oxygen machine and go outside and smoke their damn cigarettes. <laughs> I'm like, 
to my mother-in-law, why are you smoking? You, you're on an oxygen machine. You can't breathe. Why are you still smoking? I don't give a shit. I'm going to smoke my cigarettes. And that was what my mother-in-law said to me. I don't care. And I'll tell you what she was doing. She was smoking originally with the oxygen tank connected. Oh, wow. That's dangerous. Yes. And there, the, she was, she lived in this um, retirement community and she had a lady that would come over and clean her apartment every week, once a week. And the lady stopped coming over and the agency notified us, uh, notified her daughter, who was my wife at the time and said, you know, ma'am, your mom is smoking with the oxygen tank attached to her and we can't send anybody out to clean her apartment if she's going to do that. Yeah. She needs to understand how dangerous she could blow this whole apartment up. Yeah. So we had to have a talk with her. I had to go over there and say, Barb, you can't do that. You can't do it with it attached. If you're going to smoke, you're going to have to go outside. I said, because you could kill. Well, it's not hurting anybody. It's not hurting me. I'm like, no, but you could kill your neighbors. Yeah. If your apartment explodes. It's yeah. not about you. So we had a talk with her and she agreed. Okay. Okay. If I want to smoke, I'll just, you know, I don't know if you could turn it off or if you can go outside or whatever, but she stopped smoking with it on but my dad did the same thing. I mean, he didn't smoke with it attached to him. He'd go outside and smoke it and then hook himself back up because his granddaughters and my brothers were there, you know, so he didn't want to endanger. My dad was good about that, though. He didn't, he never wanted to endanger anybody. He never had the attitude that he didn't care about that. But still, I was like, Dad, why are you smoking still? Yeah. You know, you, you, yeah. you can't breathe, man. I'm like, it's the cigarettes that caused all this. Why, why, why? He's like, Mark, I just, I can't explain it. I just, I, I can't explain it. I just got to do it. I can't give them up. Yeah. He's like, well, it's, it it's, a, it's a heavy duty addiction. I mean, you've, you know, you've used them for all your life. Well, yeah. most, almost all your adult life anyway. And, you know, and quite frankly, that helps with anxiety and that kind yes. of thing. And so he, how you cope with life. Yeah, exactly. That's what he used instead of alcohol or drugs or whatever, you know, or even worse things, you know, like LSD or whatever, and where a lot of the guys who came back from Vietnam were dealing with those kind of heavy duty drugs, a cocaine, whatever. And so in one respect, at least he only was dealing with cigarettes. Do you know what I mean? It could have been worse. He didn't do anything. Yeah. He didn't really do anything heavy. He just I don't, know, I don't know what he did when he came back from Vietnam with his buddies, but towards the end there, I mean, most of my life growing up, all I, I mean, it was his cigarettes was his coping yeah. fashion, him and my mother. And, um, and of course it didn't help that my mom still smokes. So my dad, he, I think he said he tried to cut back. He tried to quit, but he said, he's like, Mark, you know, your brothers are still smoking. Your mom's still smoking. It's hard for me to quit when I see them smoking. I want a yeah. cigarette too. When I see them with a the cigarette. So I was like, well, yeah, I guess basically the entire family would have to all quit together, but that, that ain't was, happening. That, that ain't happening. <laughs> you got like four, you got all these lifetime smokers in there. It's not happening. But just it made me so sad because I knew all of his problems came from the smoking, you know, not having the being able to breathe. He might have had some type of lung cancer. I mean, he did have some issues related to cancer. I don't really recall all of them. Uh, but he did, he did tell me that he, his issues were related to smoking. And, um, I just knew it. I just knew it. I, I'd known for years that it was going to be, it was going to lead to his death. And I told him that, and, you know, I think, the, but the last time I saw him, 
Um, everything was great. I talked to him. I gave him a big hug as I always did. I told him I loved him. He always gave me a real big hug, a bear hug. And, you know, I left and that was the last time I saw him, but I'm glad that the last time I saw him was me telling him that I loved him. But the day he died uh, in 2021, you know, I got a phone call from one of my brothers and they had told me that he had passed away and he, he died at home. That was and good. I, yeah, he did. It was good. I'm glad he did die at home because he got to be my, my brothers got to talk to him before he died. My mom was there. My sister-in-law, when he died, my mom was holding his hand and my sister-in-law was holding his other hand. So they were right and his granddaughters were in the house. I mean, he died right there with his family. My mom, my mom said that he had to, he said he had to go to the restroom. He had to go pee. He sat back, he sat down in his chair. He just got a new recliner and he sat in his recliner and, um, he said, I can't breathe. Those were his last words. I can't breathe. And then my mom said his head slumped over to the side and he was gone. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, he went that quick. I mean, it was just out of nowhere. He was, I think he was playing a video game or something. And, um, because he was retired, so he just sat around the house and chilled. But um, they told me that when the funeral home came to get him, they were very respectful with, you know, they laid him on the ground, and then they put an American flag over his, because they didn't take him out right away. They covered his body with an American flag when they found out he was a veteran. And my brother said, hey, can you take him out through the back? Because, you know, you there's a hearse here or whatever, you know, and there's an ambulance. So, you know, neighbors are gawking and rubbernecking, standing around trying to see what's going on. And he's like, you know, I'd rather you take him out to the back, not the front where all the neighbors are, you know, because we don't need them seeing it. Yeah. Body out. yeah. So they did, you know, they took him out. I was kind of sad that everybody got to see him the day he died, except me. Aww. So I, I didn't, I didn't even get to see him at the house. He was already taken out of the house, you know, by the time I got there. And since everybody had seen him, his final wishes were to be cremated. He didn't want a funeral. He didn't want to be buried. He didn't want a funeral. He wanted no fanfare. He didn't want anything. And he told me that before he died. He's like, you know, Mark, when I die, I, I don't want nothing. I don't want nobody, no fanfare. I don't want no funeral. I want everybody to remember me as I am alive. I don't want anybody looking at me in a coffin or something. And, and that being their last memory of me. Of me. Mm-hmm. He says, just have me cremated and then just spread my ashes somewhere so that's that's what we decided to do we honored his wishes and when they had him at the funeral home i was the only one in my family that went because my brothers and my you know his granddaughters they, it was just too painful for them and they had seen him that day while he was alive but that was good so that yeah they they didn't want to see him before the cremation but so when I talked to the people at the funeral home, I said, I, I need to see my dad. I didn't get to be with my dad on his last day on earth. So I need to see him out. So they let, I, they clean him up. They said, we'll clean him up, come out in a couple hours. We want to, you know, make sure he looks presentable because death had been setting in and you don't look so great, I guess, when you first yeah. dead for a little bit. Yeah. So when I came out, you know, they had his military uniform on him and. Um, oh, Wow. Yeah, so he was cremated with his military uniform. My mom picked it out, and, um, you know, I talked to him for a little bit. I rubbed my fingers in his hair. I kissed him on the forehead. I told my dad, I said, Dad, I love you. I'll miss you. I'll, you know, I'll miss you for the rest of my life. I got to say goodbye to him that way, and he just looked so peaceful, you know. He just looked like he was sleeping. I mean, I've been to a lot of funerals, and, 
you know, they never get any easier. As you get older, as you know, you go to more of them. Yes, you do. Young, you don't go to very many, but as you get older, that's one of the things. It's you begin going to your coworkers, your friends, your family. You, you know, you, you outlive a lot of these people that meant so much to you. Yeah. And I knew I'd outlive my dad, but and I knew he was going to die, but I guess I just wasn't ready for it. But I know he suffered. You know, and I know it's selfish that you tell people sometimes, oh, I wish he was still alive. And that's how I felt. You know, I wish he was still alive, but that was just being selfish of me. You know, it's like he was suffering and I could see it in his eyes, you know. And um, so it, it was like, I, in a relief, it was kind of good that he left because I didn't want him being on living the rest of his life on an oxygen machine. I didn't want him gasping for air and smoking those damn cigarettes anymore <laughs> now he doesn't smoke anymore wherever he's at i'm sure he just they wherever he's at in heaven they told him you and ain't no cigarettes up here okay. <laughs> i'm sure that's the first thing god told my dad i'm sure that's the very first thing my dad said when he hit the pearly gates can i get a cigarette up here? <laughs> jesus man where the hell can a guy get a cigarette oh, sorry michael no cigarettes up here <laughs> I'm sure my dad knowing my dad that's the conversation my dad had but um yeah so it's been hard I think about him all the time and I miss him because I used to text my dad all the time like I like to share memes on my Facebook page and the ones that I that are pretty off color that I don't can't really share on there with people I shared with him <laughs> I would send him the most offensive stuff in the world that I could find and send it to him because he loved it. And I always sent those to him. And then I always talked to him about my problems and vented to him and asked him for advice. And I think that's one of the things that I really miss about him is not being able to do those things anymore, you know, not being able to talk to him. And, and that's probably one of the big problems with losing your parents, you know, because, you know, a lot of times you go to your parents. For me, it's not been my mother that I went to for advice. It's always been my dad and it was my grandmother, but my grandmother passed away also. So then it just got down to where it was just my dad. And now that my dad's gone, I don't really have anybody that I feel comfortable going to, to, you know, really talk to. You know? Like your confidant. Right. I mean, I love my mom, but me and my mom don't have that type of relationship where I talk to her about things that are very personal to me. That was stuff that I saved for my dad. I just felt more comfortable talking to my dad about it. I felt like he understood me better. But um, it's been very hard. And I've got to be honest, I'll tell you what, I, I haven't been doing too well with it. You know, it's been two years and I just feel so empty about life. You know, I just, I know this is a grief thing. And, you know, I, and people tell you, you know, they talk about what is it when you die? They say closure. I've never had any closure. I'll never there is have no closure. Su- that word no makes me crazy. That word no makes me crazy. <laughs> The thing is with my dad is I've just learned to accept his death. That's it. That's all there is to it. I have no choice. I have got to learn to accept it. And it's very hard because you're talking about a person that's been in your life, your entire life, a guy that changed your diapers, a guy that carried you around the house when you were a baby, you know, a guy that you sat hours playing video games with or watching war movies, or he got me loving John Wayne. Me and him used to spend hours Saturday. <laughs> sitting watching he got me watching John Wayne movies. And uh, I saw the Alamo for the first time with him. I saw Star Trek. 
Um, there's a movie called Night of the Living Dead. It's my favorite horror movie of all time. You remember that Night of the Living Dead? I've heard of it, but I'm too I'm too like I can't watch that stuff because it gets in my spirit and then I feel terrible. <laughs> I can't movie. watch those kind of movies. It's the very first zombie movie ever made where the zombies ate people. But Ugh. it's a George Romero <laughs> classic. It's in black and white. Yeah, but it was made like in 1968. But it's the very first. It's a classic. Um, it's a classic zombie movie. First time I ever saw that, I saw that with my dad. My, me and my dad watched that together. And how did you like it? I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. Now I love those movies, like, you know, like Walking Dead, zombie movies. I love all that stuff. Horror movies. I enjoy all of it. I can't but a lot of those. those, a lot of those movies, I mean, I watched, I watched with him. I mean, you know, I, through watching these things with him, I learned a lot about it, like the Civil War, watching the horse soldiers and the Alamo. Yeah. And I eventually got to visit the Alamo. But the first time I ever heard of the Alamo was with my dad, because my dad had been to the Alamo. And so there was like certain historical type movies and he wanted me to watch them, you know, like uh, Sansa Iwo Jima. And it was like, I remember I that. Yes. Uh, and that's how I remember, learned about Iwo Jima was watching that movie with my dad. And in 2015, I visited um, Arlington Cemetery. I think I'd been there before, but I was there recently in 2015. And I went and visited two guys, John, oh, I can't remember what his last name was, Bacillus, I think, but he was a sergeant. I think he won the medal. He was a Medal of Honor recipient, and he died on Iwo Jima. And the thing was, he didn't have to go to Iwo Jima because he was just going around promoting people, war bonds, and all this other stuff. John, Bas can't remember his name. Like I said, but he was he won the Medal of Honor, and they were using him to talk about the military. He was kind. Of, he became a celebrity actually. But when 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 the Marines invaded Iwo Jima, he didn't have to go. He wasn't even a plan to go. He demanded to go. He said, I want to go. Wow. Like, well, we don't, we don't want you to go, dude. It's dangerous. You, you get killed out there. We, we got you doing public relations. You know, this is safer. You're the Medal of Honor recipient. You can't be out there doing that. He's like, but I'm a Marine. That's what I do. So reluctantly, they sent him out there and he got killed. He was killed, I think, within the first couple of days. Oh. He, he wanted it. That's what he wanted. But I visited his, I visited his grave in Arlington. And I also visited Ira Hayes. Ira Hayes was an American Indian uh, who was in the um, who was on that hit that beach. He survived it. He's one of the flag bearers. You've seen the famous where the Marines are putting the flag up on Iwo yes, Jima. Yes, yes. There was like six of them. He's yes. one of the men that was putting that flag up. Oh wow! And uh, that's a very I, famous picture, isn't it? And yes. video. Yes, yes. I can still hear you. But uh, yes, I. Um, visited his grave too when I was in Arlington. So it was very special, you know, visiting those graves. So he's the one who introduced me to a lot of that, a lot of that history. I mean, even Roots, that movie Roots, that's how I learned about slavery and Holocaust. Yeah, I remember I that. Holocaust. I watched both of those movies with my dad because my dad was very keen on teaching me and my brothers about history. Mm -hmm. And he wanted us to watch these movies and then he encouraged us, if you want to know more, go to your libraries and, and see if you can find anything like from the Civil War, the Alamo, slavery. Right. I want you to learn about this stuff. So as a kid, my dad encouraged me to read books about that kind of stuff. Now, today it's different. People don't want their kids reading about that stuff. You know, they don't want their kids knowing about slavery or want their kids to know about the Holocaust because it's just too hurtful. 
Yeah, I've read that too. That a lot of educators feel it's just too painful to teach them about the past. That's no, but shit. this is part of life, right? And I this learned is what this, this is what really right. happened. Or some I, people are trying to act like the Holocaust didn't even exist. Didn't I think there's that's people horrible. That yes, yes. they want to do deny that. It, that deny it. And there's people that deny slavery ever happened. They, and they, a lot they, of people use that word "triggered," which I don't yes. know. I can't deal with it because, look, this is real life. Okay, these things really did happen. You know, yeah. people we know have been murdered. That really happened. Um, you can't whitewash it to make it sound like you know it never occurred. That's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, that's, did that's you? What they're trying to do. Yeah. And, and pull all these books off the library shelf. Yes, yes. Yeah, to act well, I, like it's I not. I saw Charlotte's Web. Charlotte's yeah, Web came off. That's craziness. Charlotte's Web. I grew up reading that and watched a cartoon. That's about death. Doctor Seuss. Yep. Doctor Seuss too. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of school systems that have taken Doctor Seuss off, and they've taken Charlotte's Web. Right. And see, those are other things that my dad introduced me to. My dad introduced me to those cartoons, Charlotte's Web, Doctor Seuss, and encouraged me to get those books from the library. And I did, I, I rented all the, I borrowed all the Dr. Seuss books I could. Yeah. You know, the Charlotte's web, I mean, everything. So my dad, that's one thing that he really gave me that I'm so glad he pushed for me was reading because my dad was an avid reader. He was always reading. My dad always read paperbacks and he was always, he was kind of a nerd like that. He, but that's what he did. He read and he had his cigarettes. I mean, <laughs> he smoked his cigarettes and he read his books that's what he did he always was reading a book and he was very very smart too he's a very smart man but um he pushed that for me and my brothers and he was that was very that was something he really encouraged me as a child i don't know how many parents today would put their kid on a couch with them and say i'm going to show you something about history and let them watch roots or let them watch the holocaust i don't know i don't I can't really think of any parents today that would get those movies for their children and have their children watch those at eight or nine years old. My dad had me watch those at eight or nine years old. And he told me, look, and we're talking 1975, 1977, 78. Mm -hmm. And that's, and I guess that was okay back then. It's like, look, dude, this stuff is horrible, but it happened. Right. And I want you to know about it because the only way that you can prevent it from happening and realize how horrific it is if you understand it. You can't understand the pain of somebody if you don't know what they've been through. Right. And slavery. And he said, look, he said, a lot of black people are angry. And he said, but look at their history. Look where they came from. You know, you know, they were slaves. Their ancestors were slaves. He goes, and they're angry about it. He goes, so watch this and you'll know why. And know why, you know, 50,000 men died on the field of Gettysburg within three days. 50,000 Americans died on that battlefield in three days to preserve the states staying together as one country and to for the free the slaves. In 1863, I believe the Emancipation Proclamation declared over 200 years of slavery in America ended on that date after the Civil War. So all these guys fought and died. I think 622,000 is considered a close, efficient a number for soldiers that died on both sides. Huge amount of yeah, people. to free the slaves because the South was willing to negotiate, but that was the one thing they would not 
they they absolutely refused to negotiate yeah. that. They said we want to keep our slaves, and it doesn't matter. We're keeping our slaves. Right. We're not. You're not going to negotiate that. You're not taking that away. So the courts of the North had to take it, force them to give that up. But I mean, there's so much history there, and they don't teach that stuff today. And I've talked to my nine year old grandson, and we talked about it maybe a week or two ago. And they don't. He doesn't know. Any, he doesn't know anything. Yeah. He's nine years old. He doesn't know anything about the Holocaust. He doesn't know anything about slavery. He yeah. knows nothing about the Civil War. He knows nothing about the purpose of Gettysburg. He doesn't even know where Gettysburg is. Yep. You know, when I was his age, when I was 10 years old, I already knew about slavery. I already knew about the Holocaust. I knew six yep. million Jews had died. I already knew why the Civil War was fought, and I knew the significance of Gettysburg because that was the breaking point where pretty much the South lost. They still fought after, but that was pretty much the end of them when they lost to Gettysburg. Right. But all these things I knew before I was 10 years old because my dad encouraged me to learn about these things as a child. And that's one of the most special things. One of the biggest gifts he ever gave me was just being inquisitive about everything. And, you know, and he gave me a lot of history lessons. He told me a lot about Vietnam and, you know, and what it was like being there. Because I used to ask him questions all the time. What was it like over there? He didn't really tell me until he got older, you know. But um, Did you ever go? Did you ever go to the Vietnam Memorial with him? yes. No, no, no. He wouldn't go. I went in 2015. Oh. He, he wouldn't go. He never went. I tried to get him to go with me before he died. He, he wouldn't go. He okay. refused. And I was like, Dad, just go with me down there. He's like, Mark, I, just, I can't do it. I can't do it. He probably would have seen so many of the he of his friends, and it would have been too much for him. That's what he told me. He's like, Mark, I know guys on that wall. He goes, I, I can't. I can't do it. You know? And I've known – and when I was at the wall visiting in 2015, I the guy – there was a, a, a volunteer there. And he was also a Vietnam War vet. And he said, you know, he's trying to talk to your dad to come down here. And I said, hey, I can't, man. My dad won't come down here. I, he just won't do it. He said he can't do it. I've tried talking to him about it. He says, yeah, there's a lot of vets that are like that. I can't come down here. It just, yeah. it, it's just, it would just hurt them too much. Yeah. He says, but you know, he goes, it brings peace to a lot of them. A lot of them have gone back to Vietnam or a lot of them come down and visit the na- and see the names and it brings them peace. He's like, yeah, my dad won't do that. Yeah. So I told my dad about it. And he just, he's like, man, I can't do it. And he never did. He died before ever going. He would have never gone out there. But um, he just told me a lot of stuff about it. And it, it just really changed him. I mean, he was never the same person after he returned from there. He was I can appreciate guy. that. I mean, it changed. It, it affected him. I mean, he got back when he was probably 22, 23. He went over there when he was 19. And just the time he was over there, those couple years or whatever. He was in Thailand, I think, for two years. Uh, but, you know, the whole experience that he had over there completely changed him the rest of his life. The way he viewed life, everything was just different. Sure. He just didn't view things. He didn't view things the same. And, you know, and I, I used to, I asked him when I got older, you know, what what it was like. And, and I asked him one day, I said, hey, dad, I was like, I was like, you were up face to face with some of these Viet Cong soldiers and shooting them, you know? And I was like, what did they look like? He said, they look like you. And uh, wow. I was like, wow. He's like, yes, yeah, son, they look just like you. He goes, and that, he says, it's just kind of hard to deal with, you know? He's like, 
I look at you and your brothers and, you know, and, and, and you guys look like, that's what you guys look like, those Viet Cong soldiers that I used to fight over there that I had to kill. They look like you guys. Wow, that's intense. That was, yeah, it was. I mean, he told me a couple things. Like, he was telling me about um, something that bothered him was, he was telling me he was standing around with a couple guys, and he said he, a girl, he said this girl must have been 12 or 13 years old. And he said she started walking up to him, and my dad said she had a backpack on. And he said smoke started pouring out of this backpack. And my dad said that someone had put an explosive in her backpack and sent her over to him and two other his friends. And he said they had their M16s on them. And he said they just opened up and shot her. Right. And he said she she exploded. <gasps> oh, my and, God. Um, so dad said she was probably, he said she was a kid. He said she was probably 12 or 13 years old, you know, a child. And he said, Mark, I, I had to shoot her. He says, I killed her. And he goes, you have no idea how bad that hurts, you know? Yeah. And he says, or, you know, having them put explosives on children and handing you their children and they've got explosives and watching them explode and seeing your buddies get blown to pieces. Or he said, they put them on dogs and send dogs over, put them on babies, attach them to children and send them over to you. And he said, they did, that's what they did. And he said that shooting this kid was something that just stuck with him. Sure. And How could it not? Said, right. And he, he had told me stories about where he had gone into South Vietnamese villages and he said where everybody was dead, you know, he said the heads were cut off and he said that the heads would be on, they would put sticks in the ground. They cut these guys, head, men, women, kids cut all their heads off and put their heads on these posts or he would see women that had been raped violently. You know, you could just tell. He said they would be raped and killed. Their head, people's heads were cut off. He said they cut babies' heads off. And he goes, this is what the North did to the South and put those heads on these these pikes. And um, he just said, seeing that, you know, a whole village of them, decapitated people, you know. And he says, who can cut the head off of a child? Or who can... Who would put an explosive on a child, you know? Those things just deeply hurt, affected him. He's a 19, 20-year-old kid, and he's seeing things like these, you know? And these were things he never forgot. And um, he told me that one of the things that he did, and uh, which I found really disturbing, but he said a lot of his buddies did it. He said when he would come across dead Viet Cong soldiers, he'd cut their ears off, and he took a coat hanger. And he said he'd put them on a coat hanger. And he said he had a whole coat hanger full of their ears, and he would wear them, wear them around their uh, his neck is a, a necklace. Wow. I was like, you did that? He's like, yeah, me and my buddies. He says, we all did it. He said, they did the same thing to us. You know, and he said that what the Vietnamese would do would be he would cut their, his buddies or when other American soldiers, when they would kill an American soldier. My dad said they would cut their penises off and keep their penises of these American GIs for souvenirs. Like, Holy crap. He's like, we did it to them too. I'm like, dad, I don't even want to know if you did that. Don't tell me that. I don't, I don't, I don't even want to know that. Don't tell me about that. I'm good with you telling me you collected their ears and saved the ears as souvenirs, but don't tell me about, I don't know if you collected penis. But he said, Mark, it was war. 
And he said, you know, when you're in a situation like that, you do all kinds of things just to stay alive. And he said, I did a lot of things over there. And you know, what was kind of funny was before he died, that last time that I talked to him, you know, he said, Mark, I got to tell you something. I said, what, dad? He goes, I want to talk to you about something kind of important. And I said, what? He said, well, I know you love me. I'm like, yes, very much. He says, and I know you think I'm a wonderful dad. I'm a great guy and all this stuff. I'm like, yeah, I still do. I always, of course. He goes, well, let me tell you something. He goes, if, if I told you some of the things that I did when I was in Vietnam, things that I'm ashamed of, things that I did that were so horrific, I don't think you'd love me anymore. Mm. I don't think you, I don't think you would have such a high admiration for your dad if you knew if i told you some of the things that i did that were so vile you know and what would be considered evil that i did over there he goes i did some really horrific things and he says i've had to live with this what i did he goes i can't even tell you what i did and um i was like dad don't don't even let's don't even go there man i'm like don't, right. don't, don't even go there i was like i, I don't care what you did I said, I don't want to know what you did, and I don't care what you did. I said, whatever you did over there, you did because you felt like you had to do at that time. I'm like, I love you, and it does not matter what you did over there. You know? And I don't know. It was almost like he was, like, relieving his soul of something, you know? Like, he knew maybe he wasn't going to be around to see me. That would be the last time he would ever see me, and he wanted me to know that. Maybe he wanted me to hear him say, dad, it's okay. It's all right. Whatever you did, it was okay. And that's why I told him, I said, God forgives you, dad. I said, you've asked for forgiveness, right? He's like, yes. He goes, but I've lived with it my whole life. You know, that must've been the most difficult part is the reliving, the rethinking, you know, and he had never, he never told me that before. He never, he'd never said those kind of things to me before that the last time I talked to him before he died, that was, that's what he told me. Wow. I don't even think I told my mom. I don't think I told my mom or my brothers either that conversation. I haven't actually. I've never told anybody. I've never shared that conversation with anybody. I don't think. Um, maybe just you. Not right now. I don't. <laughs> that was just a conversation that me and him had that I just, I don't know. I just felt it was weird. It was like some kind of a deathbed confession. Aww. You know, that's kind of how I took it. And then, you know, he was gone not long after we had, maybe within a year or so after we had that eight months or whatever after we had that conversation but um yeah so that's um that's pretty much it and like i said is is for the grieving i don't the only way i really grieve is i just deal with it i mean i've had moments where you know i cry sometimes you know and i still do periodically because i miss him so much but uh really i mean that's just about it i mean there's nothing i don't think there's anything else i can really do i mean now, my son, who was close to my dad, my son says he gets visits from my dad. He said my dad's visited him in his dreams. Oh, that's wonderful. But I've never had those visits. And I said, I wonder why he visits you and he don't visit me. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, some people believe in that and some people don't. But here's, here's what got me about it. I thought, well, I didn't know. Maybe, whatever. Maybe, yeah, sure, sure, son, whatever. But he told me some things that my dad told him that he said that only I would know. Oh, that's great. So then it's verified. Yes. Yeah, so he said, so he said, dad, he goes, 
I'm going to tell you a couple of things that grandpa told me in a dream. And he said, only you would know these things. And so were they no, true? Yes. Ah! Like, oh my God. He told me a couple of things that I had never told, never told him. I never told my brothers. He told me some secrets in my own life. I mean, there was one particular thing he told me that I have never told a soul. I mean, it was just something I did that I was in the house. I was by myself in the house, my house alone. There was nobody in this house with me. You know, I was just by myself, something I did. And, um, nobody knew. I never talked to anybody about it. And he knew my son knew. And I was like, there's no way. Did you, you feel comforted from that? Uh, yeah, I, I did. Cause you I'm knew glad. for sure that he was in heaven or wherever. Yes. And that he was reaching out to your son to make sure you knew he was okay. Right. And that's, that's exactly how I look at it. So that's, that has brought me a lot of comfort. And according to my son, my dad says, I need to read my Bible more than what I'm reading. <laughs> so according to my son, my yeah. dad says that I'm not reading my Bible that much. Enough. But was your dad reading his Bible when yes. he was there? Oh, he yeah. did. Oh, okay. okay. My dad was, my dad was a devout Christian. He, he really, he was a Lutheran. Um, very, very, very devout Christian. He lived a life. I mean, he, he was a good man. I mean, he really was. He was able to put back his experience in Vietnam and his anger. And a lot of it calmed down over the years as he got older. But yes, he was a devout Christian. He believed his faith. So I know that if there's truly a heaven out there, he's going to be there. Or he will be there. He'll be in the right place yeah. because he was such a good person. He was a good human being. Um, so whatever he did in Vietnam, I think he atoned for it after yeah. he, God gave him the gift of living through it. Yeah. He gave him the opportunity to atone for whatever it was he did that I, I don't know what he did. And I'm sure no one will ever know. A lot of those guys are gone anyway. So, yeah, you know, they're all dying off now. Pretty soon there won't be any left, you know, kind of like all the world war one vets, the Korean vet. War uh, vets. Yeah. And the world war twos, there's so few of them now. Right. So, but, uh, yeah, so that's, that's pretty much it though. You know, I just, I just miss him. You know, I, I think about him all the time and I guess there's that saying about as long as you think about somebody, they don't ever die. So yeah, they're always alive in your, in spirit. Yeah. I, so I think really in a nutshell, that's pretty much how I agree for him. I just think about the good things and the things that he taught me. And whenever I watch, I watched the horse soldiers a couple of nights ago. And first time I ever saw that, it was a John Wayne movie. I watched, I just don't know. I just wanted to watch it. So I watched it a couple nights ago. And it's like, I remember watching that with my dad for the first time. I watched it with him, you know, and um, I saw it with him when I was a kid a long time ago. And I watched it a couple of times with my dad, but that's the first time I'd ever seen that movie. So I thought, you know, I want to see that movie again. <laughs> so I went ahead and watched it a couple nights ago. It reminded me of him. So I that's just have so things I see in movies and history. It just reminds me of him. So yeah. you, have to ask, have, you have to ask your son to, um, uh, I have to get him a remembrance journal. I started a, a new Mary Mack show, uh, journal collection. And one of them is called the remembrance journal. And so when your son has these dreams about your dad, he should write it in there for safe. Keeping. I will. Yeah, I will. But I said, but I, don't, I don't, the thing I ask my son is I don't understand is why doesn't he come to me? He's never come to me. I mean, he is not. Well, he might in the future. Maybe. He might in but, the future. But he's coming to my son. My son told me he's coming. He's talked to him in his dreams several times. And wow, that's amazing. Yeah. 
you know, I think he said my, I think my uh, son said my dad looks really young and healthy too when he comes to him. <gasps> oh, that's so good. You know, I yeah. often have that, that uh, thinking like when we die, do we die? Do we stay the age we were when we died or do we go back to being more, you know, youthful? I always think about that, you know, yeah. we'll see. We'll know one day. Yes, we no. will. Mark, thank you so much for spending this time with us. I'm so grateful. And uh, in the show notes, I'll have the links to Mark's podcast and Catch My Killer podcast. And it's on all of the um, podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, wherever you find your podcast, it's excellent. And he gives voice to all the families who have lost loved ones to murder. And I personally appreciate that very much. So thank you, Mark, for being with me today. I hope you have a glorious day. Bye now.